0: All right, good morning. My name is Jason DuPaul. I'm the next gen pastor, just in case I've never met you. (laughs) Uh, So, this week, if you want to grab a Bible, we are going to look at the final teaching section of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. So like I said, we're wrapping up Jesus' teaching section in the Sermon on the Mount, which we began talking about the Sermon on the Mount, if my math is correct, back in January, which means we should finish the book of Matthew about 2037 A.D., the year of our Lord. So again, it's important to note in this last section, the Sermon on the Mount is not instructions on how to be saved, but what a saved disciple looks like. And how they live So would you please stand with me as we read Matthew 7:24 through27. "Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You may be seated. All right, so context is always important, and this section starts with a therefore, so you've got to ask what the therefore is there for. And it's probably pointing immediately back to verses 21 through 23, where Jesus is talking about true and false, excuse me, true and false disciples. So here he uses another powerful illustration to explain who a true disciple is. But this could also be seen as a summary of the warning section that he started back in chapter 7, verse 13, where he gives uh, the wide and the narrow gate, and then he starts talking about false teachers or false prophets, as well as 21 through 23. So it probably points back a little bit to that, and to be honest, it's a perfect capstone for the entire Sermon on the Mount. So in the verses preceding the tale of these two houses, Jesus warns about entering the narrow gate to make sure that you do that. He points back to the false teachers, And he said that there's even people who refer to him as Lord and do miracles, but they did not know him. They did not put Jesus' words into practice, which is the critical element that he's trying to get through in these final verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus' goal here is to motivate people to appropriate action. And the appropriate action is constructing your life for catastrophe. Jesus uses the Greek word poieo, which means to do multiple times in these last few verses. And he's trying to get across that a disciple does what he says. They obey his commands. So why is Jesus' teaching definitive? Why is it so set apart from anything that the ancient Jewish audience would have heard? Why has Jesus' teaching changed world history? Because the will of the Father becomes definitive in what Jesus calls these words of his. So hearing his words are good, but if that's as far as it goes, it doesn't reach the goal he wants it to reach. Enjoying his words are good, but that doesn't reach the goal that he wants his disciples to reach. You can even be inspired by his words. But in the end, those don't really mean much unless we act upon them, which is what Jesus wants us to do. It might be hard to understand how someone who heard the historical Jesus live in person might not respond properly. But think about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, especially verses 20 through 21. It says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, And immediately receives it with joy. So there's an immediate emotional response. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation, hard times, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there's no benefit to be received by simply treating Jesus' teachings as ear candy. So, to better understand this image that Jesus uses here, we need to understand the land and the weather of the area. And if there's one thing I know about modern people, they love ancient Near East topography and weather patterns. So, buckle up. So, the image Jesus uses here is of a wadi, which is a dry riverbed that contains water during rainy seasons and is located in a valley-like area of the desert. And there's a couple pictures up there. The first picture is of some mountains near the Negev Desert. It gets significant rainfall during a short rainy season, but storms come out of nowhere. One minute the sky can be perfectly clear and sunny, and the next there can be a sudden wall of water gushing through. And the walls in that first picture are really steep, but you can see the effects that the violent rainfall has on the terrain. This parable would have been drawn a strong reaction from the crowd. It's almost like a joke constructed by a stand-up comedian to convey truth because of the ridiculousness of the situation. The foolish, foolish man built his house in a floodplain knowing that it's a floodplain. It'd be like somebody trying to go camping on the interstate. It's that ridiculous. You don't put up An abode where there's going to be danger and destruction the crowd would have been like what are you doing that makes no sense at all so jesus here also lays out two ways he's been doing it for several verses but the two ways paradigm is how uh the bible especially in the old testament there's proverbs distinguishes between foolishness and wisdom, and righteousness, and unrighteousness. Again, there's a popular way in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition that marked out the fact that there are truly only two paths for a person to take, either the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. And Jesus makes that clear not just here, but in the previous sections of chapter 7, that in the end, there are really only two types of people. And these passages probably refer to the final judgment, but it doesn't emphasize it. So there is obviously throughout a disciple's life, you're going to face difficulties and trials and testing. And this looks to that too, not just the end when all things will be revealed in our hearts or the state of our hearts will be revealed. It's critical to note that in each of these final four passages, failing to respond is catastrophic. These are the words that Jesus uses to, des- to describe it. Destruction, cut down and burned, excluded from the kingdom of heaven, and the total collapse of the house. So the message is clear. To ignore Jesus' words is total spiritual disaster. So Jesus values obedience. Since this is the end of the sermon, Jesus does not give more commands like he has throughout the sermon on the mount, but he emphasizes obeying his commands over disobedience. One of the most challenging verses to me when I was a new believer was John 14:15. It's a simple but powerful statement where Jesus says to his disciples, right before he's about to go to the cross, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's straightforward and that's a promise. If we are his disciples, we will obey and that's how we display our love for him. Not by having gushy, sentimental feelings in our heart, but by obedience. That doesn't mean that there isn't temptation and that there will be no struggle with our will, but the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and gives us a desire to obey what jesus says according to these parables being in the audience and hearing jesus teach was no more a guarantee of salvation than to just simply voice jesus as lord or perform miracles in his name the fruit of a truly regenerated saved heart is obeying jesus commands It's not enough to hear and emotionally respond with a temporary flurry of good deeds. As one of the commentaries put it, rather we must build a solid foundation that combines authentic faith in Jesus with persevering obedience. And again, we are empowered by his Spirit to desire obedience to Jesus and to actually carry it out. We're not on our own. He gives us what we need. He makes us a new creation. So to clarify again, though, the Sermon on the Mount describes what the life of a disciple looks like. It's not how to gain salvation. So again, it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus is the sole foundation. As Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name by which a person can be saved than Jesus. In fact, the entire church and its success is built on Jesus as the only foundation, as Peter confesses in Matthew 16, 18. On this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Another promise that Jesus can make because he is the Lord and he is the foundation. So Jesus ends the Gospel of Matthew with the Great Commission. The last verse of the Great Commission, the last verse of the book of Matthew, is 2820. And there's a lot of focus that I've heard about... Make, I mean, making disciples is good, obviously. But people tend to focus on verse 19. But Jesus says something really important in verse 20 as well. He says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the Father' in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... And also teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. I would say some of the gospel preaching over the last several decades has encouraged making disciples without the need to obey Jesus' teaching. But that's not the Great Commission as Jesus stated it. It's obeying Jesus' commands that prepares us to withstand violent storms. So that means that disobedience is constructing toward a catastrophe, because storms will come. Jesus promises that in John 16, where he says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Why? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So there's not much description about the houses that the two people in the parable build. Jesus may have been describing just a simple mud brick house, but there's no need for the specifics about the structure because that's not the point. In the image Jesus uses, there may be not much difference between the houses to a casual observer, but the violent storm reveals the contrast. The difference between the two houses is obedience and disobedience, and that's Jesus' point. Both houses look good in good weather, But the storm reveals the true nature of things that are going on inside. So it's no surprise that Jesus uses here. Sorry, excuse me. It's no surprise that Jesus uses something that's used in the Old Testament multiple times. A picture of a storm that reveals the inner nature of what's going on in people. The first passage is Ezekiel 10. Excuse, excuse me, 13, 10 through 16, where Jesus, or excuse me, we're in the Old Testament now, so. <laughs> where in the Old Testament, God is going after some of the false prophets for leading people astray, and he goes into detail about them, saying, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end, And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God has some very strong words for these false teachers, these false prophets. And Jesus uses that crushing storm image in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Also in Isaiah 28, 15 through 19, and Job twenty two fifteen through 16, there's a similar point made. And in all of these, the solidity of the foundation is the key. The Israelites were building on false ideas and false words of false teachers. That sandy foundation would be revealed by the torrent that God would send. We just came from L.A., which is maybe one of the, excuse me, L.A. I didn't say that very well. We just came from LA, which is maybe one of the largest concentrations of people who have everything that a human could possibly desire wealth, things, celebrity, influence, substances. The highest rule there is often self rule and following your heart. It's an ultimate display of building your life on temporary things, i.e., the sand. It's not that money and possessions are bad, but when good things become God things, good things turn into idols. And they become a sandy foundation because they were never meant to take the place of Jesus. They weren't created to be rocks. So just like the old hymn states, and yes, I know, I'm a youth pastor and I know a <clears> hymn. <throat> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus's name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. In Jesus's, or excuse me, in James' letter, he puts it this way in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So let's close with three principles that we can take away from this text. Principle one, Jesus is not a hippie. (laughs) He's not a cosmic Santa Claus. He's not a magic genie. He's not a fairy godmother. He's not just a good example or a good moral teacher. Jesus is Lord. He's not just a Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The creator and ruler of the entire universe. If you remember nothing else today... I hope you'd let these passages that I'm about to read grow your understanding of the absolute supremacy of Jesus in all things and above all things. The first passage is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he's the creator and the ruler and makes redemption possible. If we skip over to chapter 2, Paul goes on, verses 9 through 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The head of all rule and authority. You skip down to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now that is a Lord to be followed. He's the only reason that I really have to be up here. If you ask my high school speech teacher, he's not what I, he would tell you I'm not what's commonly called a skilled public speaker. <laughs> but I get to announce and proclaim the excellencies of our King. As we were preparing for our trip to L.A., we uh, studied in this journal thing that we had, and there was a quote in there by the theologian Abraham Kuyper, And he said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. One commentator put it this way, this is a fitting conclusion to the section. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but obeyed. So earlier we looked at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And verse 20 says that we should teach disciples to obey everything that Jesus taught. But if you look at verse 18, the beginning of the Great Commission, Jesus says that all authority in heaven on earth have been given to him. That is the impetus for us going out and making disciples and sharing. It's not us on our own and our own strength. It's because Jesus rules everything and owns everything. And we are going out in his power to announce that he is the risen Lord. And then at the very end of Matthew, the last phrase, he will go with us every step of the way. So it's not about us or our strength. It's about announcing him as the risen Lord. Principle two, this is probably duh, but eternity matters. So it's just a friendly reminder that heaven and hell are realities And they are realities that need to be taken seriously because Jesus takes them seriously. And in these final sections of the Sermon on the Mount, he warns his hearers about how critical it is to respond to him the right way. Our world starts twitching at even the thought that God might not want us to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. What we do in this life matters. Everything along the way reveals where we've placed Jesus in our lives. And as, I forgot to read that in first service too. This would be a good time to read Philippians 2. All right, we'll go back. As Philippians 2 states, verses 9 through 12, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So as Philippians 2 says, one day we will all stand before him and acknowledge him for who he is. So if you haven't ever embraced him in faith, I plead with you, don't waste another moment. Come to him today. And then principle number three, a constant invitation. So we live in a broken world, and we're sinful beings. So maybe you've been building your life on the sand, but I want to encourage you that every breath is an opportunity to switch foundations and to shift course. Jesus is there waiting and inviting. There's always an offer to build on the right foundation. Revelation 22:17 17 says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by emphasizing an all-or-nothing commitment for his disciples toward him. This is a question I ask myself. Am I all in? I reflect as often as I can. The theologian D.A. Carson, to close, says this, The Sermon on the Mount doesn't press people to despair or self-salvation. It presses everyone to Jesus. There's no glee or cheer to the prospect of perdition or destruction. The warning that Jesus gives about which foundation to build your house on is an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for sending your Son that we don't have to go this life alone, that we don't have to endure storms alone, that you have grace and mercy when we build our houses on sand. We pray that you would (coughs) do a mighty work in our hearts and help us to fully grasp what you've done and what Jesus has for us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.